Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. There's more tariff troubles for California's farmers as China imposes new fees on popular commodities from California. The list includes wine, fruit, and tomato products. We have the details. It looks like smoke taint from wine grapes is becoming a problem. We have the story of one California wine company refusing to buy the grapes of a grower from a wildfire area. Which ag products are taking a big hit in the southeast due to Hurricane Michael? We have an update. The Trump administration has given the okay for more ethanol fuel, but is E15, that's fuel with a 15% ethanol content, going to be a problem for your farm equipment? All that, crop reports, and more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. In the escalating trade conflict between the U.S. and China, more California agricultural products now face new retaliatory tariffs in one of their export markets. China has implemented a new round of tariffs on $60 billion worth of U.S. goods, and that includes a wide range of foods and ag products. The tariffs came in response to new U.S. duties on $200 billion in Chinese exports. And the California Farm Bureau Federation reports that the new Chinese tariff rates of 5 and 10 percent are targeting farm products that come from California. Wine, cotton, cut flowers and other nursery products, frozen fruit and vegetables, honey, olive oil, canned peaches, fruit juices, wood and other forestry products, various processing tomato products, including ketchup, paste and sauces. Some products are new to the growing list being hit with retaliatory tariffs, whereas others, such as wine, are incurring multiple hits with this current round. Regarding California wine, when compounded with existing duties, the new total tax rate will equal 79% according to the Wine Institute. Now, interestingly enough, despite those increased tariffs, U.S. wine exports to China and Hong Kong, 90% of which are from California, went up 34% to $118 million during the first seven months of this year. Other commodities... Well, not so well. Roger Isom is president and CEO of the California Cotton Ginners and Growers Association. He described the increased tariffs on cotton as devastating because the state exports 100% of its cotton, with the majority going to China. Meanwhile, shelled almonds and fresh sweet cherries have been added to the commodities eligible to receive direct payments under the Market Facilitation Program. That's part of a three-part $12 billion aid package meant to help U.S. farmers directly affected by retaliatory tariffs. Previously, payments were available only to producers of soybeans, sorghum, corn, wheat, cotton, dairy, and hogs. Tariffs or no tariffs, U.S. agricultural exports continue to run higher than a year ago, and for the first 11 months of fiscal year 2018, U.S. export value? $133.1 billion. That's up from the previous year, about 3%. Agriculture Department trade economist Bryce Cook, that increase coming mainly from a 5% increase in high-value product exports. Bulk commodities running 2% below last year, mostly that's soybeans. There was a 7% drop in value and 3% drop in volume of soybeans compared with the previous year. But the interesting thing is that if you look at the soybean export value just in July and August, the first two months of the Chinese tariffs on U.S. beans... Those totals are actually up as far as exports go to the world, 24% above what it was the previous year. Even though U.S. bean prices are lower and sales to China are down, Cook says other customers have come in to buy from us at those lower prices. Specifically the EU. 
in Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. A California wine company has suddenly canceled contracts to purchase at least 2,000 tons of wine grapes from southern Oregon growers because of apparent smoke contamination from wildfires. The Capitol Press is reporting that Copper Cane Wineries and Provisions, based in Napa Valley, told growers as recently as late September that it would not buy the grapes. John Pratt is president of the Rogue Valley Wine Growers Association. He owns Celestina Vineyard in Medford, Oregon. He says Copper Cane rejected the grapes valued at $4 million, leaving the fruit to rot on the vine. Pratt says vineyard owners tested and found that the levels of certain compounds released by burning wood indicate smoke taint in the fruit were actually below cause for concern. A representative for Copper Cane didn't return comment. Meanwhile, researchers here in California are still testing the grapes from last year's fires in the Santa Rosa area. The wine country wildfires of a year ago may help University of California researchers learn how to offset the impact of smoke on wine grapes. Vineyards at a UC research station in Napa County were exposed to smoke from the fires. Now a UC Davis specialist has made wine from the grapes picked at that station just before and just after the fires. She hopes to learn more about winemaking techniques that would prevent smoky flavors from hurting the wine. Under what has been known as the North American Free Trade Agreement, U.S. agriculture by and large has done fairly well in trade with partners Mexico and Canada. Now that a new deal, known as the U.S., Mexico, and Canada Agreement, has been reached, how will our nation's ag sector fare going forward? One person in the know, the U.S. Trade Representative's Office Chief Agricultural Negotiator, Greg Dowd, believes there are improvements for U.S. ag trade opportunities. When it comes to agriculture in North America, we have really an extraordinary relationship and have an ability to move it forward for the years to come. Dairy, specifically Canada's dairy product classification system and its impacts on U.S. dairy exports, was the high-profile ag issue. What Ambassador Dowd says was resolved by elimination of Canada's Class 6 and Class 7 regime. But not Canada's excess skim milk powder or milk protein concentrate, which caused the issue in the first place. So, in terms of that skim milk powder, that has to be based upon a U.S. Class 4 price. It can't be a lower price than that. So that's a change in the system. And also, we phase in a limit on what Canada can export in terms of skim milk powder. And if they exceed that, then there is an export charge that applies. Another export commodity that should benefit from this new deal is U.S. wheat going into the Canadian marketplace. Canada has now agreed to great imports of U.S. wheat in a manner no less favorable than Canadian wheat, and that's a big step forward. Compared to the long-standing Canadian practice of grading U.S. wheat imports as feed, lessening that commodity's value in that market. Also, Canada will no longer require a country of origin labeling statement on U.S. wheat imports. Ambassador Dowd says the USMCA as a whole also makes significant advances in discussion about standards for biotechnology and consultations about new types of biotechnology like gene editing. As well as addressing how to reduce trade distorting policies among the three nations through means such as increased transparency on export restrictions that have a basis in food security. And how do we enhance dealing with sanitary and phytosanitary issues at the speed of commerce? With advancement of science-based decision-making and improved certification processes. 
I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Senate Bill 100 puts California on the path to 100% fossil fuel-free electricity by the year 2045. That means that all electricity generated then will be from 100% renewable energy sources, and that includes solar panels, biomass, smaller hydroelectric facilities, as well as wind turbines. In the meantime, electric bills, they're going to go up so the power companies can meet their benchmark goals. One of those benchmarks is the year 2024, when 40 to 44 percent of all electricity generated will have to come from a renewable resource. Now that SB 100 is law and energy costs will rise, making efficient use of the energy available is going to be critical at farms where most energy goes into irrigation. Bill Green is with the Advanced Pumping Efficiency Program at Fresno State. He recently demonstrated for the California Farm Bureau ways to control and monitor irrigation pumps for maximum energy efficiency using Fresno State's mobile irrigation classroom. We can demonstrate what happens with pumps when they wear out or the water levels change, if it's a deep well pump, things like that. And so we can demonstrate all those different conditions here with this pump and show how it affects energy and cost to pump. When I change the flow and pressure, it'll change the efficiency and the cost per acre foot to pump water. So for example, if I open this valve up, the flow rate goes up and there's less pressure. That's why I don't hear as much noise now. And the efficiency, though, drops way down. It's because every pump has one point where it was designed to work best, and this is not it for this pump. If I close the valve, it goes back up the curve. That makes the efficiency better because this pump was designed to work with some pressure on it. And now it's pumping about 100 gallons a minute with about 95 feet of lift, which is equivalent to about 41 pounds pressure. And, and that's how we judge pumps to see if they're giving you the right flow and pressure and if they're doing it efficiently so that you save as much money as possible when pumping costs. 2045 isn't that far off, and that's when that goal of 100% of retail sales of electricity has to come from renewable energy sources. By the way, SB 100 clearly states that this bill will prevent unreasonable impacts to customer rates and bills. Here's this week's California crop report. In Tulare County, the cotton harvest has begun. Alfalfa was cut and baled. Corn and sorghum were harvested for silage. Sunflower, beans, and rice continue to be harvested in Sutter County. In the Sacramento Valley, rice and safflower harvest is ongoing. Table and wine grape harvest is continuing. Late variety grapes were covered to protect from rain. Raisin grapes were harvested and laid out for sun drying, while dried raisins were picked up. Asian pears, nectarines, peaches, pears, plums, pomegranates, and quince, they're being harvested. Stone fruit harvest is winding down for the season. Some old stone fruit orchards were torn out for replacement with new trees. The Simmons are maturing well. The olive harvest is underway. Finger lime and Valencia orange harvest is continuing. Citrus groves are being skirted, hedgerowed, and irrigated. Naval orange fruit thinning is ongoing. Pushed out citrus groves are being prepped for planting. The almond harvest is wrapping up for the year. The pistachio harvest is ongoing. Orchard floors were prepped for harvest. The walnut harvest was underway in some locations. In San Mateo County, Brussels sprout harvest is continuing. Cucumbers, peppers, and tomatoes are still being harvested in Tulare County. Brassica and lettuce continues to be harvested in Monterey County. In the Sacramento Valley, processing tomato harvest continues. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture was in poor condition. Though recent rains were welcomed, more precipitation 
information is needed for grass germination this fall. Cattle continue to be provided supplemental feed. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. Well, Happy New Year. We're in a new water year. That began on October 1st. The Department of Water Resources noted that despite below average precipitation in the 2018 water year, most California reservoirs are storing near or above average levels of water as we head into the 2019 water year. According to the Mountain Democrat newspaper of Placerville, much of Southern California ended up with half or less than half of average annual precipitation in 2018. The April 1st statewide snowpack, based on over 260 snow courses, was just 58% of average for the water year 2018. That lack of water coincided with ongoing warming conditions, setting new records this past summer for maximum temperatures in the South Coast region and elsewhere in California. However, while conditions overall were dry, California did experience sporadic periods of significant precipitation. An atmospheric river event in April brought new records for precipitation, most of which fell as rain, but not snow. Though the event was short, it produced the 10th largest flood on the Merced River, impacting Yosemite National Park. The event was a reminder that floods can happen any year, even during an overall dry one. So, when's the next chance of rain for Sacramento and Northern California? According to AccuWeather, keep your sunglasses on. Mostly sunny skies will prevail from October 14th through October 31st, with highs near 80 and overnight lows in the upper 40s and low 50s. I don't think we've seen anything like this in the panhandle in decades. We are working hard to get everybody prepared. We're working well, Florida hard. Governor Rick Scott prepared for Hurricane Michael. We are, unfortunately, expecting some significant agricultural damage. Agriculture Department meteorologist Brad Rippey, along Michael's expected path, heavily cropped areas of cotton, peanuts, and soybeans, quite a bit of them still not harvested. Soybeans, for example, nationally, 23% had been harvested by the start of last week. But, of course... A lot of the soybeans in the southeast are planted much later and are not ready yet. So only 5% of North Carolina's soybeans had been harvested by September 30th. 25% of Georgia's peanuts had been harvested, but only 6% in South Carolina. For cotton, Georgia and South Carolina had only picked 6%. North Carolina, 3%. But that was more than a week ago. And producers have been busy, no doubt, trying to get crops out of harm's way where possible, where crops are mature enough. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue says USDA is prepared to help the agricultural community recover from Hurricane Michael. We uh, obviously have damage. That's what crop insurance is for. That's why the farm bill is important for a safety net of those people who lose everything. His comments came in an interview with Fox News. Farmers take so much risk every year. This hurricane is part of that. And uh, that's why it's important to have the uh, safety net programs that we have at USDA for farmers to apply. So we encourage them to reach out to their farm service agency. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey points to how the storm could cause the most damage. The bigger story with Michael is obviously going to be the extremely high winds, Category 4 type winds across western Florida 
and damaging winds likely spreading into parts of Alabama, Georgia, and later the Carolinas, and perhaps even a little bit north of that. Other big problems, storm surges and heavy rain. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. More than three dozen federal agricultural programs have seen their funding lapse because the five-year farm legislation expired at the end of September. A California Farm Bureau policy specialist says most impacts on farmers and ranchers would be avoided if Congress finalizes a new farm bill before the end of the year. A conservation program popular with California farmers was not affected because its funding was authorized through next year. The U.S. is now 111 months past the last recession, the second longest growth period for the U.S. economy. But Agricultural Prospects President Bob Young says that whenever all the indicators are pointing in one direction, it is probably time to at least start thinking about what might happen next. At this stage of the game, economy ticking along reasonably well. We've got very low unemployment numbers, inflation not really that much of a factor even yet, some wage growth numbers also to talk about. The concern is is that the previous record for economic growth was 120 months. Now we're sitting at 111 months. Young says an economic slowdown doesn't seem likely within the next few months, but could be a topic of concern within the next year. I don't think we're going to talk about that for several months, but nine, 12 months from now wouldn't surprise me for us to talk about an economic slowing. I think the economy is also very vulnerable to policy actions. I don't think we've yet fully understood all the implications of all the trade troubles that we've got going on at this stage of the game. He says farmers and ranchers should pay close attention to interest rate volatility. I think we're going to talk about the Federal Reserve doing some interest rate rises at least a couple times yet this year. And so then the question becomes, what do the market-driven interest rates do as that interest rate rise occurs? The downside would be that the long-term rates don't follow the short-term rate increases up, and we talk about an inversion in the yield curve. When that happens, we almost always end up, within a few months after that, talking about a downturn in the general economy. For more economic insight and analysis, visit fb.org slash market intel. Michael Clements, Washington. The California Farm Bureau Federation released its ballot recommendations with the general election approaching. The Board of Directors of the Farm Bureau encourages voters to approve a water bond measure on the November ballot, but to reject an initiative that would impose new restrictions on how farm animals are raised. The organization also took position on five other measures that will be before the voters in November. Farmers have been struggling with not only a labor shortage on one end, but long-term supervisors, farm managers, and farm owners are starting to age out of the business. The Center for Land-Based Learning is a nonprofit organization located in Winters, and they recently created the California Farm Academy Apprenticeship Program to help address these needs. This is the first registered apprenticeship program in agriculture in Northern California. Farmers can send current employees through the program to gain skills and knowledge that will help them move into new management positions or look for new potential employees through a ranked and filtered applicant pool. Alex Hasbach is a CFA apprentice, and she talks about her experiences with the California Farm Academy program. So I am a second-year apprentice here at Romanger Brothers Farms, working with the California Farm Academy's apprenticeship program. This season, I'm spending most of my time helping our team of irrigators manage their irrigation and fertilizer program for a variety of different crops. And I also spend some of my time helping out with projects around the shop, driving tractors, or even doing some accounting or regulatory work in the office. The California Farm Academy Apprenticeship Program launched in 2017. 
and is the first apprenticeship program to train farm managers approved by the state of California. Apprentices are paid to work and must complete 3,000 hours on a production farm over two years. They also complete 250 hours of coursework that ranges from soil science to cash flow budgets and labor laws. Apprentice applications are reviewed by California Farm Academy staff and sent to farmers who then make hiring offers. The application process is competitive. All coursework and tuition costs are waived for apprentices. I looked at a number of different farm training programs and what really attracted me to the California Farm Academy was the breadth and depth of the coursework that was offered as well as the chance through the apprenticeship program to have an established grower mentor and get a significant number of on-the-job training hours in an established operation. The apprenticeship program has already been hugely helpful for me in confirming that I really do enjoy this work of farm management, something that I could see myself doing long-term. Being part of this program and part of the, the Farm Academy has also given me a really nice network of people in agriculture in this area and helped me understand better the whole landscape and the agricultural industry here. I can start to see more of the, the needs and opportunities in the future in this area. And, and one of those definitely is orchard management. There are a lot of new orchards going in and um, this is a crop I enjoy working with and a, a place where I see opportunity for future uh, work. So I'll be spending more time here at Romanger Brothers focused on orchard management and looking to grow that part of the business more in the future. Applications are open for the 2019 apprenticeship program. More information about the California Farm Academy can be found at landbasedlearning.org. That's landbasedlearning.org. You might remember we had a story a while back about a new machine called the Iron Wolf. It can basically rip out an almond orchard, grind up the trees, and incorporate the grind into the soil. University of California has been studying the effectiveness on this, especially on second-generation tree growth. You can see a whole almond orchard recycling demonstration coming up Wednesday, 10 a.m. to noon, at Cal Almond's Lake Springs Farm Facility at 4424 Hawkins Road in Dene. Besides the demonstrations, there will be talks about the whole almond orchard recycling and the effect on second-generation tree growth, yield, and fertility, the long-term impacts of whole orchard recycling on soil properties, as well as tree resilience to water stress, soil health, carbon sequestering, and, of course, the iron wolf in action. So that's coming up again Wednesday, October 17th, 10 to noon, in Denair at the Lake Springs Farm Facility of Cal Almond at 4424 Hawkins Road in Denair. For more information, you can call the Cooperative Extension Office in San Joaquin County at 209-953-6100. Tree nut production in 2018 is expected to rise from the previous year. According to USDA economist Agnes Perez, NAS forecasts bigger crops for almonds, walnuts, and hazelnuts. And because of this, we will likely see a boost in overall tree nut supplies in the United States during the 2018-19 marketing year. In fact, for almond and walnut crop production, both California almond and California walnuts are forecast to reach a new record high. She says that level of production is expected to contribute to lower grower prices this marketing season. The downward pressure on almond grower prices due to a larger crop may be dampened by lower than average gaining stocks. For walnuts, grower prices will likely receive additional downward pressure from higher than average carryover supplies from last year. 
Likewise, projected record hazelnut production is also expected to put downward pressure on grower prices for that commodity. I'm Ron Bade reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. There's no question that it isn't just what you know that helps you advance in life. It's also who you know, and that goes with agriculture as well. One great group of the California Farm Bureau Federations is the Young Farmers and Ranchers Committee, and Central Valley Agriculturist Ken Kashefi is a member of the state committee, and he helps farmers with products and regulatory compliance. He encourages other young people in the agricultural area to get involved in the Young Farmers and Ranchers program. I've been in Young Farmers and Ranchers for oh, almost uh, eight years. I am the uh, uh, District 9 representative for the Young Farmers and Ranchers State Committee. And I uh, joined Young Farmers and Ranchers initially to learn more about the Farm Bureau organization. But the Young Farmers and Ranchers has been a great experience, uh, not uh, only for opening up uh, new networking opportunities and getting to meet people up and down California, uh, but also to help uh, give back to our local communities. Anybody who's uh, in the age range uh, between 18 and 35 that's in ag or you know, not, not necessarily in ag, but wants to get more involved in ag, I'd highly recommend to join Young Farmers and Ranchers. Great opportunity to new, uh, meet new people in your age range and learn more about ag and get involved in the local community and, and uh, get more involved uh, in Farm Bureau and learning about the organization. It's been a great experience. For more information about Young Farmers and Ranchers, you can visit the California Farm Bureau Federation's website, cfbf.org. Action by a federal judge in South Carolina has revived the 2015 Waters of the U.S. rule, making it the law of the land in 26 states. Don Parrish, American Farm Bureau Federation Senior Director of Regulatory Relations, says the ruling is a major setback and AFBF and others are working to defeat it. That court said that the Trump administration could not delay implementation of that rule and that is a significant setback and it creates some real problems for agriculture. You've got one judge in South Carolina telling the nation, 26 states, they've got to implement a rule that's already been found to be likely illegal. Farmers and ranchers in those 26 states are now subject to the flawed 2015 WOTUS rule that Parrish says will create uncertainty and have detrimental impacts to their operations. Clearly, it's going to leave farmers out there open to be challenged. It also creates huge conflicting permitting obligations. There's going to be some core districts that have to implement both the existing rule, the 1986 rule, as well as the new 2015 rule, depending upon which state they're operating in. And that's going to be very disruptive. A coalition including AFBF notified the South Carolina Federal District Court that they will appeal the court's ruling that reviewed the 2015 WOTUS rule. We went back and asked this judge because of the disruption and the problems it's going to create to reconsider. We've also gone to court in South Texas to ask that judge to provide a nationwide statement. And then we're also asking the administration to put its head down. We know that it's got work to do, but we need them to finalize this repeal as soon as possible. Michael Clements, Washington. Let's go back to 1947 and to Libertyville, Illinois, for a weekly national farm radio show called The Man on the Farm. And on this show, they recognize what they call the Blue Ribbon Poultry Producer of the Week. In this case, a George M. Heber from San Antonio, Texas, who sent in a special recording for the show. Last year, we raised about 3,000 pullets. Our birds have made excellent records both in the egg-laying contests and on our farm. And that's probably an understatement, as show co-host Denny Dinnerline explained. He said the year before... A hundred and two hens in Mr. Heber's flock laid 300 eggs or more, several laying as high as 340. 
And that's a lot of eggs for one hen. He was phenomenal. Reaction today from Agriculture Department Livestock Analyst Shale Shagham. These days, we think our production efficiency is tremendous, certainly better than way back then. But there were earlier pioneers, as you heard. So, cue the time machine. And let's take a trip back in time. And go back and talk about 1947, which was when this, this radio piece took place. Now, Shagham says USDA does not officially do average eggs per layer statistics, but to get an inferred average eggs per layer for 1947... If we look at the number of eggs in total and then divide by an average of the number of birds per month, we come out with about 158 eggs per layer of all types in 1947. So that 300 to 340 eggs per layer that Mr. Heber was getting far above the 1947 average. So uh, now let's uh, cue the time machine again here. Here we go. And fast forward 70 years to 2017. And then if we, again, if we divide the number of eggs of all types by the number of all layers for the year, you come up to about 281. So, again, he is above the national average for even where we are today. Seventy years or so since people were listening to that radio show. The man on the farm. Thanks for the fun. We'll see you again next week for another visit with the man on the farm. Wow, farm broadcasting has changed a lot, though, since 1947. In Washington, this is Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Back in June of 2017, President Trump went to Iowa and told farmers there, We will protect the corn-based ethanol and biofuels that power our country. And just before his trip to Iowa this week, the president, taking another step in that direction, announcing he was ordering the Environmental Protection Agency to start the administrative ball rolling on allowing year-round sales of gasoline blended with 15% ethanol. That blend currently not allowed for sale during four summer months because of concerns about air quality. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue said he's happy about this decision. This is great news, obviously, for America, for American energy independence, for consumer choice and certainly good for agriculture and our corn farmers out there. Purdue said eventually year-round E15 could use about 2 billion more bushels of corn, helping prop up corn prices for producers. Oil industry representatives, though, planning legal action to stop year-round E15 sales, saying the administration doesn't have the authority to order it without specific congressional legislation. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Changes of seasons usually means a change of your outdoor power equipment. As spring approaches, you might be firing up the lawn more one more time perhaps as fall or winter approaches you might be starting that chainsaw because you have to because of a down tree or if the electricity goes out during a winter storm you pull out the generator it doesn't start what's the problem usually it's the fuel we're talking with chris kaiser he's president and ceo of opei the outdoor power equipment institute and first of all chris let's talk about the opei what is its goal what it's what is sure, the mission sure, Fred. good to be with you thanks for having me on the outdoor power equipment institute is the trade association for equipment manufacturers so our manufacturers make the things you just described chainsaws mowers generators chippers, shredder, grinders, water pumps, anything um, that runs on an engine. But we also have all kinds of power sources. So certainly a lot of new battery stuff in the marketplace, electric in the marketplace, propane, diesel, electric, hybrids, even we make robotic mowers that are solar powered. So we have a wide range of uh, 
power sources, and it's all the equipment you buy for outdoors and to provide power in an emergency setting. You have a wonderful website as well, opei.org, where people can get a lot of tips about uh, maintaining their uh, power equipment for their yard, garden, or farm. And as you point out, uh, that's not such a great idea to leave uh, fuel in a in an engine. Fred, you've keyed in on probably the most important aspect of maintaining outdoor power equipment. It's the fuel. So if you're using gasoline product, one of the keys now is to know the fuel you're using. Uh, and it's in particular importance of where you are in the country. What's happened is the federal government has gotten involved in mandating the inclusion of ethanol in your fuel. So depending where you are, where you live, and how much ethanol is in your fuel can, can essentially dictate how long that fuel will stay fresh. Stale fuel is problem fuel. And so ethanol is alcohol. And you bring put alcohol into your gasoline. Um, it's hygroscopic, which means it absorbs water. So as it sits, it absorbs water. Once it absorbs enough water, the fuel phase separates. It just pulls apart. It divides into, into fuel and water. Water's heavier. It flows to the bottom of the tank, and you pull that in the engine, and it'll fail or not run well. Plus, you're bringing water into the engine, which is a problem. So... The key is the fuel. The, the equipment's probably going to be fine. They're used to sitting for long periods of time. A lot of our stuff is seasonal use, so chainsaw, mower, snow thrower, portable generator. You want them to run when there's an emergency. Water pumps to deal with floods. And so the key there is, again, know your fuel. No fuel should be left for more than 90 days. Best thing to do is 30 days. Um, you should not keep fuel. So at the end of the season... Run your equipment dry. Just run it out. Let it sit dry. Then you'll be in a much better position in the spring or winter when you're pulling those back out. And use a fuel stabilizer, something that deals with the alcohol and the fuel. It's not so much of a problem for automobiles, but it's certainly a problem for seasonal stuff and stuff in a marine environment or where it's wet. So boat users have a significant problem with ethanol in their fuels because they're in a marine environment. Same thing with snow machines, you know, motorcycles, stuff that's seasonal use. You got to be mindful now. One more thing, and I know it's quite a, it's a mouthful here on ethanol, but ethanol is also in the marketplace in multiple um, concentrations for a subset of the auto fleet. They're called blender pumps. You can dial up your amount of ethanol to E15, E30, E85, depending on where you live and what you're driving. If you have a flex fuel automobile engine. Remember, oftentimes, whatever you put in the car, you put in the can, remember, in the jerry can. And the can went home, and you put it in the mower, and the snow thrower, and the generator. That's no longer the case. You simply can't do it. Ethanol has less energy in it. It's oftentimes cheaper. So the more ethanol in the fuel, the cheaper the fuel, but the less energy, the more likely it'll give you trouble. So if you have a flex fuel engine in a subset of the auto fleet, I know it's a mouthful, don't put it in the jerry can. Up to 10% ethanol for essentially anything non-road, and that's a government requirement. That's the lawful requirement. E0 to E10 for all non-road. All other stuff has to go into subsets of the auto fleet. So when people are at the gas station and they're looking at the pumps, they should uh, look for that decal that says uh, the ethanol content might be E10, not E15 or E30. Absolutely, Fred. When we're used to buying octane, right, so the pumps we're used to looking at, 87, 89, 91. We still look at octane, but the label you've just described is now critically important. You'll see a label contains up to 10% ethanol or an E15, or then you'll see a flex fuel label for everything else for flex fuel autos. But as you might suspect, 
it doesn't do a very good job of educating the consumer. So we're glad folks like you are talking about it. So look for the E10. Now you mentioned yes, you mentioned Octane, and I've received differing reports from uh, different repair agencies about which Octane to use in your small engine equipment. Some say 87, some say 89, some say 91. I've ha- I haven't heard anybody say 93 yet. In your estimation, wh- what is the best octane for the uh, outdoor power equipment? Rule of thumb is um, because, again, I have 100 members. We sell about 30 million units a year. Um, remember, there's a size and class of product for everybody, man, woman, young, old, strong, weak. Outdoor power equipment comes in every size, every configuration, every weight, every power. Like you can get a small electric chainsaw or you can get the big, heavy forestry beast. Um, And they're very, very different. So the key is read your owner's manual because the engine classification could be different. Uh, We have about a thousand engine families that are regulated by EPA in California. Our stuff's regulated for emissions and EVAP, just like cars. And so you've got lots and lots of variations. And so the key, again, know your product, read your owner's manual. But rule of thumb on outdoor power equipment, it'll run essentially on any octane. Uh, octane is not necessarily the problem. If it's at the pump, it's likely okay, with the exception of that ethanol content. That's where you run into trouble. But on the octane side, most outdoor power equipment will run just fine. Those higher octanes are not necessarily needed, only because it's typically for a higher performance or a higher compression engine. And that's usually not the case with most outdoor power equipment. But you can get some pretty big stuff with outdoor power equipment. You'll get some electronic fuel injection in there. It may be uh, suggested or required. And again, the key is reading your owner's manual. Now, you mentioned stabilizers earlier, and a lot of people will take that shortcut before the uh, season for that particular piece of equipment may end. They may have gas still in the tank, and they'll throw some stabilizer in there thinking the fuel will be okay through the winter. True or false? False. Um, Part of it is where you live. What's the variation in temperatures? Uh, What is the humidity? Uh, how much moisture is in the air. But rule of thumb, it will it will stabilize and it will help, but it will not hold it for a season. Uh, you should not let fuel sit in a product for a season or for, you know, beyond 30 days. And the best uh, option is to uh, run the equipment until it's totally out of fuel. Run it dry and then just uh, park it. You should be just fine. Uh, get fresh fuel for the spring or winter, whatever you're bringing into, uh, into use. Uh, start with uh, new fuel. There's also fuel options. A lot of fuel now, you'll see it at the big box, your Lowe's, Home Depot's, uh, et cetera, uh, where it's, there are all kinds of different brands, but it's E0, you know, it's pure fuel. And uh, that has an extremely ex- long shelf life, extended shelf life. Now, if you're using a fuel like that, which is designed specifically for marine, snowmobiles, outdoor power equipment, that kind of stuff, It's a little pricier, but if you do buy it, it has an extended shelf life and you won't have the same kind of problems. Uh, Two-stroke versus four-stroke engines. There's still a lot of two-stroke engines on the market, leaf blowers, chainsaws, uh, weed whackers, whatever. What special considerations uh, for two-stroke motor owners are there? Special needs, uh, oftentimes a two-stroke. Again, these are all emissions regulated. So whether it's a four-stroke or two-stroke, they're all emissions compliant with your you know, respective state and national regulation. Um, 
because you need certain some kinds of power, there's a lot of applications where two-stroke is very, very useful. Let's say, for instance, in your chainsaw. Well, that means you're using a gasoline oil mix. And here again, the ethanol is critically important. As you add ethanol into a petroleum-based fuel, uh, and you're mixing that petroleum-based fuel with oil, those four carbon atoms, they'll get married, they'll mix and stay married and be happy. You put alcohol into that mix, it destabilizes it. It makes it less likely to stay mixed over time. So not only does it have the historic issues with as being an alcohol, runs hotter, absorbs water, uh, misshapens elastomers, and is a problem to some plastics, um, it now inhibits that mix. So again, if you're blending fuel with oil for a two-stroke product, and that fuel has higher contents of ethanol, you're going to have a problem or more likelihood of a problem over time. So if you can, be mindful of when you mix the fuel, how long you're using it, how long it's going to stay in the jerry can. Or there again, you can use a zero-content ethanol fuel to mix with the oil, and it's going to stay mixed longer. Now remember, some of these products, like fire, every firehouse in the country has chainsaws and like a portable generator. You want them to run when there's an emergency or when you need them. And that's the real challenge. You have to plan for that. So you just can't let them sit. And you can buy a premix now. When I mentioned that Eero, that's E0 content fuel, you can also buy a premixed fuel, um, which is the same thing. It's going to have 0% ethanol already premixed in a can and it has a much more, much longer shelf life. And so, again, if it's an emergency-use product or limited-use product or highly seasonal, you might want to consider that. Chris Kaiser, he's president and CEO of OPEI, the Outdoor Power Equipment Institute. Chris, thanks for a few minutes of your time today. Thank you, Fred. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at kste.com.